Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Bobak Etashami Bajnordi. Bobak is a research scientist at Qualcomm AI Research. Bobak, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have an opportunity to chat with you, and I'm looking forward to learning a bit more about your research and what you're up to there at Qualcomm. Uh, but to get us started, why don't uh, you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in AI? Sure. Uh, so I did my master's in electrical engineering at Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden. And in that program, we had uh, a bunch of courses like machine learning and pattern recognition, as well as some image analysis courses which kind of drew me to this field. And I decided to do my master thesis on cervical cancer diagnosis using ML. So kind of in the medical imaging uh, domain. And I absolutely enjoyed it and decided to do my a PhD in, in the similar field. So I came to the Netherlands uh, in Radboud University. And I, and I for my PhD, I was de developing uh, machine learning models for breast cancer diagnosis in histopathological uh, images. Histopathological images are microscopic images of tissue. Um, and kind of in the early mid part of my PhD, this deep, deep learning revolution happened. And uh, me and a lot of my colleagues quickly uh, switched to use deep learnings and get, uh, get familiar with, with training it ourselves um, and kind of uh, moved to that, to using that in my entire project. And during my PhD, I also organized the Chameleon Challenge. Uh, it was a challenge on uh, finding cancer metastases uh, on breast tum tumor uh, patients. And it turned out to be a very successful challenge and uh, was one of the first examples uh, in which, uh, using AI, the top leading algorithms were actually outperforming human experts. We, we compared the, the top two algorithms in the challenge with a panel of 11 pathologists, and all, 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 they were actually beating all the 11 pathologists without exception. Uh, I also did a visiting research at Harvard, at Beck Lab, and also towards the end of my PhD, I decided to join Qualcomm, uh, where I'm here for a bit more than two years now, and I'm mainly working on conditional computation. What is conditional computation? Tell us a little bit more about that. So conditional computation in the context of neural networks refers to a class of algorithms that can selectively activate uh, its units conditioned on the input it receives, uh, such that on average, we have lower computation costs. And when I'm speaking of units, it could be layers or individual filters, for example. And uh, the, the the thing is, in, in our feed-forward neural networks, we usually have this prior that no matter what input it is receiving, we always run all the layers, all the filters, no matter what. While in reality, some examples might be simple and some harder. And maybe for simple examples, we could exit earlier from the, from the network and finish the classification. Or sometimes we are, for a classification task, classifying the image of a cat, and sometimes a, a classifying the image of a vehicle, for example. But now, even in the middle of a network that we are kind of certain that we are dealing with a picture of a cat, we are still applying all those vehicle detection features or filters in our, in our, to our feature map, which is superfluous. And also from a generalization uh, perspective, that is bad for our network. 
So conditional computation aims to selectively activate parts of a network. It could be different layers. It could be channels. It could be actually a whole sub-network in your main network, which you could completely deactivate. In fact, if we want to look back, uh, the first examples were, were maybe by Hinton, Geoffrey Hinton and Robert Jacobs from 1991. They had a paper, Adaptive Mixture of Local Experts. And the idea there was they, they trained a giant network with many um, kind of uh, small sub-networks, which were experts for a specific subset of the data. And then there was a gating network, which would get the input as well. And based on the input, it decides which of these sub-networks should be selected. And in that way, they, they were kind of uh, encouraging the network to be expert, these sub-networks uh, to be expert on their own specific data. And also in recent years, in the era of deep learning, we see more of the uh, more approaches are using conditional computation. Maybe the one of the early examples was BranchyNet, which adds uh, auxiliary classifiers in your network. Let's say some early in the network, some in the middle of your network. And the aim is that early, easy examples should exit earlier. Another work. Uh, uh, which was an in inspiring word, was convolutional networks with adaptive inference graphs, which basically uh, decides to gate, uh, basically activate or deactivate uh, individual layers in a ResNet uh, block, condition and input. They hypothesize that maybe some layers are important for specific classes, but not for the others, and they could learn how to turn on and off individual, um, basically, layers in a network. And they were actually inspired by their own previous works, with, uh, which showed that if you actually delete individual layers in a ResNet model at test time, its accuracy will not drop. That was very interesting. Uh, of course, uh, on, the, on the layers which you have a um, stride to, so a downsampling, you might get a little bit of uh, performance drop, but on the rest of the layers you didn't get. So they decided to learn when to drop. And this is also in sharp contracts to other types of confidence, like, like VGG network, you cannot actually do that. Because if you drop a layer, the, the whole sequential part will break. But in ResNet, it, it was perfectly uh, doable. And that actually constituted um, uh, the basic idea for, for what we want to do as well, uh, which was uh, starting to gate channels instead of layers. Before we get into the details of your specific research, uh, are the conditional computation techniques that you're applying exclusively focused on inference or um, uh, conceptually, it seems like you could apply it to, to both. Is that right? Uh, yes, exactly. You could definitely apply it to at training time as well. So there, there's like an if and if else uh, argument inside your training, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. If it is saying deactivate, you could choose not to send the gradients uh, toward that part of a network. Uh, and you could basically gain um, speed or uh, inference tra training time and also inference time as well. Sure. Uh, and the specific techniques that you focus on, uh, are those more concerned with inference time? Uh, yes. My, well, my, our, our main uh, focus has been on uh, inference time. We try to, uh, so we, it is definitely possible to do that for training time as well, uh, but we, we mainly focus on inference time. Speed up. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, with the the over over uh, arching implication that you're trying to reduce the you know power and cost of doing inference on a device. Right. Exactly. So maybe that is actually not the only motivation. 
The, okay. Interestingly, it, if you train such networks, these networks tend to perform much better than uh, counterparts like a fixed neural network with the same computation costs. And uh, I, will, I will describe that in a bit. That uh, the reason is that these these uh, models tend to you can start uh, training a very giant model, but then at inference time select only very limited subset of the resources available, conditioned on the input. You say, okay, this network is huge, but you should just pick the relevant ones. It induces the network to become uh, to to have expert sub networks inside the network as well. Because it, it by gating it understands okay these subset of filters should be activated for cat detection and the rest maybe for another for vehicle detection, so it actually uh, interestingly improves the performance as well, which is a good thing. Well, why don't why don't I take a step back and have you kind of describe you know at a high level the the different types of approaches you're taking in these in these papers and then we can dig into more specifics. Sure, sure. So in the first paper, which was batch shaping for learning conditional channel-gated uh, networks, we uh, we were basically thinking instead of uh, gating individual layers in the network, let's make it more fine-grained and, and gate um, individual filters. Uh, that would give us more, uh, basically more flexibility and uh, more power, representation power. Uh, it would uh, allow us actually uh, to gain more interpretability as well to understand which filters are firing for what classes. Uh, so that was the main uh, focus of the first paper. The second paper, which was on continual learning, actually before starting the, the second paper, we already knew that this idea of uh, channel gating would be very useful for multitask learning and continual learning. Because, for example, in multitask learning, one, one problem they have, so we know that if, if you, if you want to learn a couple of tasks together, it generally tasks might help each other so that it, the performance gets uh, a little bit improved uh, in general because they mm-hmm. share the features among them. But as the number of these tasks increase, suddenly you see the performance actually starts dropping. And that is because of feature interference. Uh, uh, task, uh, by forcing a specific task to use a feature which is not relevant for the task, it actually uh, starts degrading uh, performance. And we thought that if we could use our gated networks, we could decide when to activate or deactivate features and, and not allow f- feature sharing if a feature is, is not relevant. And in continual learning, uh, these gates could actually serve as memory uh, which which would allow us uh, that if a feature is particularly important for a, for a specific task, maybe we have to preserve it um, and not allow other tasks to update it too much. And the in the in the last paper, um, we mainly focused on video long range activity detection videos for classification, and uh, we saw we might get as input a, a video which is like ten minutes, but we know that there is huge amount of redundancy and ele- relevant things happening, which are not really important for the actual classification task. And we did dynamic gating of, of uh, individual snippets in the video to only focus on the, on the uh, important parts and actually saved a huge amount of computation based on that. Okay. Uh, well, let's jump into the, the first paper because I have some questions there. You mentioned that this paper is kind of shifting from thinking about gaining layers to gating individual filters. What are the specific types of filters you're, you're gating here? Sure. So, uh, so the design is something like this. Assume that we have a ResNet block. Uh, 
-hmm. we are uh, augmenting this, well, we are adding to this uh, ResNet block a gating module. This gating module gets the same representation that goes to the ResNet as input. And its output is a bunch of gates, and the number of these gates is equal to the number of uh, filters, let's say, in a, in a first uh, convolutional layer of the, of the ResNet block. So one gate coupled to each filter. And the filter wants to activate or deactivate the use of that filter. And we had a bunch of criteria. For example, we wanted the gating module to be very light uh, because we didn't, want have, uh, we didn't want to have a lot of additional overhead. Uh, we wanted the gates to be input dependent so that they don't make just, just arbitrary decisions, but they, they see the input and condition on the input make a decision. And uh, last, um, we, want, we wanted it to make a binary decision. We didn't want it to be like an attention because attention would not save you any compute. We want it to be zero or one, which means it would have been a discrete optimization problem and we used Gumball Softmax um, for training this network. But it, it was very interesting uh, problem because we started training this model and from the very beginning, if you have, let's say, it's a classification problem, let's say, and you have the cross-entropy loss, the gate automatically want to learn the most trivial solution, which is just be on all the time. And by being on all the time, they satisfy the objective of the cross-entropy loss. And it's as if you're training a boring regular network. It's, it's just uh, a standard regular network. While we wanted the gates to behave conditionally, to be sometimes off for certain types of input and sometimes on. And for that, and now you're training this network uh, it, kind of all at once. You're not separately training the the gate layer and the the network no, itself, exactly. right? We are we are training end to end all at once. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So then we started uh, saying, okay, we want to sparsify these gates. We don't want it to be always on. And by doing that, we found out actually, if you, for example, apply L zero loss, a lot of gates turn out to be permanently off which is actually not interesting either because permanently off would be equivalent to these model compression techniques like pruning uh, techniques. We want mm -hmm. the gate to be at the same time, sometimes on and sometimes off. Um, so, and, and interestingly, when we decided to encourage entropy to, to have a higher entropy, let's say sometimes on, sometimes off, these gates could easily cheat. They could generate a probability distribution centered at 0.5 so uh, assume at the output of the gate, you pass it to a sigmoid and then take the argmax or, or a threshold at 0 0.5. It could put the distribution centered at 0 0.5 that when you add the gumball noise and, and take the sample, it is randomly on and off. It's not really left, right. it's just <laughs> randomly. So it, it had learned to be a random dropout, which was really not, not something we wanted. What we wanted in contrast was uh, a U-shaped bimodal distribution, which means for certain type of data, the output is one, and for certain data, it is zero. And we said, okay, we have this strong prior. Uh, why don't we actually help the gate to have a distribution uh, like this? And that, with that came the, our, our other contribution, which was the batch shaping loss, which was inspired by the Kramer-Fanmises criterion. What it does, it basically takes our prior distribution, which is a beta, like a U distribution. We mm -hmm. compute this CDF, and then we also compute the empirical CDF of our sampled uh, distribution from the output of a gate for a batch of data. And then we minimize the distance between these two CDFs. And the interesting, well, a CDF is perfectly differentiable. The, uh, the, uh, the derivative of, that, uh, of a CDF is PDF. 
So we could get that freely from the forward pass. And then they, the distributions perfectly matched each other, which was very interesting to see. And we, th we think this batch shaping loss could be very interesting for a lot of other applications when you want to match two distributions. Before we go into the some of the applications, which distributions were matching one another? It was a beta distribution. So we, we forced the gate to have a beta-like distribution. Oh, got it. Let's say 50% on, 50% off. Okay. Uh, and that helped a lot uh, the 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 gate to behave more conditionally because he knew that it can only be 50% on. So let's turn off, turn it off for whatever irrelevant type of data. And this helped the network to behave really conditionally. And we, we could also uh, visualize when it is on, when it is off. And it, it was really uh, making sense. And interestingly, we saw yeah, very good behavior of this network. We, we saw that we could actually take a ResNet 18 model. Let's make this ResNet 18 model incredibly uh, wide. Let's make it 20x wider. But at an inference time, we force it to make it so much small that this is the size of, the size of a standard ResNet 18 with width 1. So it has a lot of filters, but you're only allowed to choose among them such that the size doesn't, doesn't change that much, but on average. So for uh, more complex examples, it could choose more filters and easier, less filters. And this ResNet 18 at the inference time size could perform as good as a ResNet 50, for example. It performs much better than uh, it's, it's kind of a, uh, an equivalent size uh, network, which is with a, with a fixed architecture. And the, How would you compare the complexity of the very wide ResNet 18 with the ResNet 50? Uh, so the complexity, we, we measure that in terms of MAC operations, uh, so multiplication and accumulation operations. So it is much, much uh, more cheaper than uh, ResNet 50, uh, of course. Uh, when, and we of course forced it to have with the sparsity to not have to not use all the filters so that inference time it is actually still the size of a ResNet 18. When you were applying the the batch shaping, is the idea that one of your parameters is how many of the gates are active? Is that how you how you were able to shrink down this wide ResNet 18 to a, a much more narrow one? Yeah, so so we had a prior for these uh, for this uh, beta distribution. The prior was actually being sixty percent on and forty percent off, uh, and we started with with a very strong coefficient in the, at the start of uh, training. So all the gates are forced to take that shape. But we, as we go on, we slowly reduce that uh, that uh, coefficient so that the model has a little bit more flexibility. And then we see that some of the gates might actually just get rid of that conditionality and go and be completely on. Those are maybe the filters which are very important and it's like too fundamental. They, they need to be always executed. But there are some gates, the majority of the gates keep that shape, but we also added the L0 loss. And L0 loss has the uh, ability to actually throw away if a filter is completely useless. Um, so, for example, if due to poor initialization, uh, some of the filters turned out not to be that useful uh, for the classification task, it could actually uh, push it down to uh, completely off. So we have a combination of completely off filters and um, completely on filters, but the majority conditional filters. Uh, and they take the conditional ones take different shapes. Some of them might be 80% off, 20% on, 
and some of them you know, 80% on, 20% off. And we using the, the coefficient of these two losses, we control how much Mac we want to, to save, basically. Now, it, it sounds like you, you uh, if I'm understanding this right, you kind of set off with this idea of building these uh, conditional channel gated networks. And when you saw kind of the gates you know, all on or all off or kind of flipping randomly back and forth were these, uh, presumably these were your initial experiments and they were surprising. Like, did you, Definitely. I, I'm, I'm curious as you were seeing these kind of results, you know, how did you know to, to go to the, to the bat shaping, you know, as opposed to, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe this just doesn't want to work, right? Yeah, like yeah, you're yeah. trying all these things, like, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so we I had um, several meetings with Max Welling, um, and we had a lot of brainstorming sessions. And uh-huh. very interesting. One one day he came. So I was uh, plotting the histogram of the gate output, uh, okay. and a lot of them were centered in the middle. And he was so sharp. Like as soon as he saw, he said, "Oh, these are like random dropouts. You want these U shape, right?" And I said. Oh, mm. yeah, I want that U shape, uh, but it said let's think about how how to make that U shape. And we thought of a lot of uh, different experiments. For example, pushing the values to be away from zero point five. So uh, the values tended to be in the center. We decided to make it pushing towards the two side, but that didn't work. We we tried the entropy as a loss. That didn't work because the gating module could easily cheat uh, and mm-hmm. center everything uh, in the middle. Uh, and a lot of losses actually led to not conditionality. So complete pruning, uh, which is like static compression methods, which were, we were not uh, interested. We wanted uh, the, the conditional way of doing that. And uh, over time, we, we thought that actually you cannot, so a single gate, you cannot uh, cause a specific distribution without regarding the entire batch. So the, the whole point was that this distribution is only defined well when you take the entire batch into account. So you know in this batch work, there is a collection of data points, and you want to these data points to get to behave differently. Uh, so for some of them, we want it to be on, and for some of them to be off. And we didn't know which ones are going to be on off. It's, it's mm-hmm. just, the network has to learn. And we actually do, didn't even know of the, so at least I didn't know of the Kramer Mises criterion. We came up with this loss. Uh, and then later stage, we, f- we found out, oh, the, the, this Kramer Mises criteria did exist. And it was like proposed like 40, 50 years ago, uh, but it was never used in, in the deep learning. And, uh, and we made it like differentiable. And, uh, and there is one key point inside that, and that when you get the output of a gate, you have to sort it um, and and then uh, generate the CDF of the sorted sorting values, uh, and then during the back prop, you have to remember to unsort the operation so that the gradient goes through the right the right input uh, and the right direction. Uh, so there, there were a bunch of tricks, but then we were we tried to basically narrow down the, the problem, make it as simple as possible to find out what makes it work, and this this turned out to work. Nice, nice. And you you mentioned that this batch shaping technique has. You were starting to mention that this batch shaping technique has other applications. Sure, sure. I, I'm thinking that it could potentially be used for whatever application in which you want. So you want to match the distribution of a parameterized feature in your network. Let's say a, a feature map to any distribution. For example, in batch norm, we may want it to be normally distributed. 
we could actually enforce that with the batch shaping loss. Um, and basically, in whatever application uh, that, that you want to impose a prior on the distribution uh, of your feature maps, you could do that this, in this, with this technique. So the next paper where you're looking at task-aware continual learning, is that building on this batch norm or sorry, batch shaping technique, or is it a separate uh, research in the direction of the conditional gated networks? Uh, so it is a follow-up on the channel gated networks. We, we use the same, the exact same type of network, but instead of applying it to ResNet, because we, we knew it would work for regular networks as well, like VGG type, we, we applied it both for regular types of models and, and uh, ResNet models. So uh, maybe I could briefly tell, talk about the continual learning problem. Uh, well, in, in continual learning, we, we have um, basically this setting that you want to learn a specific task, let's say task A, using a neural network. And you train this model using data from task A and get a very good accuracy, let's say. Then you go to task B, but you assume, you should consider that you will never have access to data from task A anymore. And now you want to train this pre previously trained model again such that it performs very good on task B, but doesn't forget what it has learned on task A. In reality, the fundamental problem with continual learning is that we have the catastrophic forgetting problem, because as soon as you update the weights, they completely forget what they previously learned. And that is actually a fundamental problem we have in training neural networks. That's why we, when training, uh, we train these models using many epochs, or we have to shuffle the data all the, uh, all the time. We cannot just take a batch and perfectly learn it and go to the next batch to perfectly learn it because we keep forgetting. And this problem also arises in continual learning. So our uh, idea was that we could uh, use these channel-gated networks um, uh, to bring several benefits. But, but let me, let me uh, before that, uh, tell about uh, two very fundamental approaches which people use. Uh, one of them is, uh, is basically uh, maybe a work by DeepMind uh, on uh, elastic weight consolidation. What they do, they measure, at the end of training on task one, they measure the importance of the individual filters uh, using the diagonals of the Fisher matrix, that if a feature, if a particular weight is very important, let's not update it too much. Let's slow down the learning on those weights and the features that were less important, we could actually uh, learn them better for, or make them more available for the future tasks. Well, obviously, the problem with this method is that as you as you go on and on and learn more tasks, you you tend to have this trade-off between learning new things and not being able to change things previously learned. And this approach works very well on simple data sets like MNIST for uh, for another uh, for let's say two or three tasks. But as soon as you increase the number of tasks, it fails. Um, there is another vein of approaches uh, which are basically progressive neural networks, which uh, they say, okay, let's train our model on task A. And then when we go to the next task, let's add neurons and uh, learn task B. And we, are, we, ha we, are, we have the ability to learn uh, previously, to use previously learned features, but are not able to change them. The problem is with this approach is that as you add neurons, it will become really um, and not very scalable because your model is going to get huge. And also you're forcing to share previously learned features, which might be irrelevant for the current task that is coming. So, mm -hmm. uh, so our idea was, was like this. So we thought 
we let's use our channel gated networks. So you have task one, you you train it using our channel gated network, and each of the layers have a specific gating module which is uh, specific for that specific task. So each task has its own gating modules. These gating modules are not only task uh, dependent, but also input dependent. Uh, so they basically, um, uh, during training, uh, we basically enforce these gates to not use all, all the filters uh, because we want to make a lot of filters available for future tasks. So we impose a lot of sparsity. Let's say a specific layer has 100 filters. Um, using channel-gated methods we, we, and sparsity, we enforce that it, for example, uses 20 of, out of the 100 filters available. And because filters, are, these gates are input-dependent as well, not all, not all of these uh, 20 filters will be actually uh, used for all the examples. Some may use only five filters, some may be the entire filters. This makes these, these, um, these channel-gated models extremely uh, efficient and very uh, with very low computational cost. You're essentially adding the task as a, another input to the channel gate that you already had before. Yes. That was an input dependent. Yes. But then we go to the, to a new task. Now, uh, the new task uh, we, is going to have its own gating module. Well, these gating modules are actually very important things because they, if we study them, how they are firing, they could easily tell us how important the feature is. If a filter is, if a gate is firing too often, it means the filter is going to be used all the time. We should never change this filter. So what we do, we look at the, the most important features uh, and in practice, we actually even uh, because of a heavy sparsification, if a, if a filter is selected even only once, we, we chose to keep it and freeze it. So all the features uh, or the filters that were important for task one, we freeze all of them. Uh, and all the rest of the filters which were not used, we reinitialize them and make them available for the new task. And a new task can obviously learn uh, the new fil filters based on, the, based on basically its own objective, but it also has the option using its own gating modules to, to choose to use previously learned features as well. It is not allowed to update them, but it can choose to use or not use them, um, which would uh, make these networks to have positive transfer of information, but not forcing it. So if a feature is not irrelevant, it will not be shared. And you can keep uh, growing uh, and increasing more tasks. The, the great thing is that these gates are always input dependent. At inference time, they're extremely light. So if you uh, make this network extremely wide, it, still it would be super light in, uh, at inference time because only a very small subset of filters are going to be selected at each uh, layer. And so how exactly are you allowing the... Uh, the task to choose the filters from the previous tasks? Is this based on initialization or something something else? So uh, so just imagine we have a resonant block and in, in, and uh, in the, let's say in the first convolutional layer, we have a hundred filters. Ten of them are frozen. so they are not he's, the, the gate is not or the, they are not updatable and 90 of them are, are learnable. So the gating module gets the same representation that goes to these uh, resonant block as input and chooses, okay, should I use this filter num number one, which is not updatable or not? It makes a binary decision, pretty much like before, but it cannot update the filter. 
it just has to say choose to use or not. But for the rest of the 90, it can update them. And um, so we, we trained this model. And uh, very interestingly, we saw that um, there are actually a lot of um, SOTA and very good methods already in the literature. And on four data sets, uh, we were able to, uh, to achieve as good or better performance than all, comp than all competing methods. But then we wanted to make this a little bit more challenging. Uh, there is a specific setting in which uh, you actually don't even know which task you are train you are operating on. So up to now, we were we were uh, assuming that you know which task uh, you are going to work on at test time, and you would only activate uh, that that branch of the network and the gating modules of that specific task. But in some cases, you might not even know which task you are working on. And this is a very complicated setting, and there is not much work in the literature. And what we did was that, uh, so we uh, we assumed from the start of, uh, at, at inference time, so we, you could train as, as usual, but at inference time, you would, when you get an input, you would gate them uh, with different hypotheses. This is task one, this is task two, this is task three, the same input. But at the end of the network, we, we added a task classifier, which looks at the gating patterns of this feature map, how, how this feature map has been uh, altered based on different hypotheses, and based on that makes a, makes a decision that which, uh, which task you are, you, I should be classifying this network. But, but of course, this classifier at the end of the network is going to suffer from forgetting as well, because you have as you increase the number of tasks, you have to retrain this classifier. And we chose to use a generative model uh, to remember the data uh, learned, uh, the data that was used for previous tasks. So when we are training on task one, we are also using a generative model to learn to generate data from task one. And these generated, are sam generated samples are used for training the task classifier at the end. Um, there are not that many methods, but we uh, there was one method from CVPR19 that we compared against and we were outperforming it uh, on the on all the data sets by actually a very large margin but it's still a very complex task it's like on yeah, it sounds like your model is starting to get very complex once you start to add a, a generative model on top of definitely. everything you've already yeah. done yeah definitely it, it this is kind of uh, a problem which is very complex already and and uh, adding the complexity of the generative model and being able to generate very sharp and uh, nice examples just adds more complexity to the continual learning problem. And do you think that there's something in particular that you've done with the the application of conditional networks uh, that allows the generative model to work, or could you have that? Could you then, now that you've seen some good results with the generative model, take that back and apply that to other aspects of the network without the conditional gating for the unknown? Uh, multitask uh, yeah. problem. That, that's a very good question. So, first of all, these gating modules, um, uh, so, sorry, these generative models are not going to be used at inference time. We, we don't need them. Uh, it's just used for training uh, the basically the, the task classifier. And after training, you can throw them away. But uh, we also actually uh, thought about uh, training this generative model using a unified giant uh, generative model, which can be gated as well, uh, in the same way that we are we are training this this inference model. Uh, 
we didn't try that, but I think it would be an interesting idea to to use gating for for generating examples as well. So uh, gating with task one, generate examples of task one, things like that. We've got a, a third paper that we wanted to make sure to cover as well, uh, and that's the TimeGate paper. Yeah. Um, uh, refresh us on uh, on the setting that that paper's uh, looking into. Sure. Uh, so in that paper, we primarily focused on uh, recognizing uh, long-range activities uh, in, in long-range videos. So the problem with long-range activities, well, first of all, what do we call, uh, when do we call a video a long-range activity? So assume we have a 10-minute video, and all that is happening inside that video is a guy skiing. Uh, and the label of that video is skiing. That's going to be so easy to classify because even if you look at a single frame, you would be able to classify the entire video. This we don't call a long-range activity. A long-range activity could be, for example, making a pancake because it has so many atomic small action items which you have to recognize. Getting, getting the egg from the, from the fridge, uh, for example, getting powder, scrambling or mixing everything together and then putting on the pan. So it has a lot of atomic uh, activities. And in order to recognize that this action is making a pancake, you have to identify all of these. But all of these could happen at different time uh, intervals inside a 20-minute video. And if you want to go and classify frame by frame all these 20-minute video, it's going to explode. It's going to cost you. Do you need to recognize all of that? Or can you just recognize the round thing, you know, kind of with bubbles and then getting flipped at the end and then you figured out you, you're making a pancake? It could be that there are a lot of classes which are similar. For example, scrambled eggs might be, making it scrambled eggs could be very similar as well. And uh, maybe there are items like picking up the flower could also be a key item here that would help you uh, identify that it's actually making a pancake. Uh, and and picking out, out the flower by itself might not be enough because the person could be making a, a very puffed cake as well. So So you need really multiple things to be able to, to recognize the entire video. So for this setting, you've got this long video with multiple tasks being illustrated, uh, tasks in the human behavior sense. Yeah. Uh, and you're trying to classify uh, all of the entire video as one thing that's happening. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Uh, so the so one of the very common way of doing that is is you divide this entire video into chunks of snippets, which let's say each snippet is eight frames, and then you could give it to a very heavy uh, model like i3D or or a resin 3D model that would uh, make a representation uh, out of these eight frames, and then you do that for like a sliding window all throughout your network, then you have a classifier that looks at these features and does the classification. This is gonna be extremely expensive. So what we saw, we saw that uh, we could maybe actually do a gating uh, using a, a gating module dynamic that dynamically looks at these frames and decides which parts of a video are interesting to look at. So our, our approach basically ha is made up of two steps, it has uh, a very, very light uh, classifier or, or uh, basically network in the, in the start, which gets a very compact representation um, of, the, of, the, of an input frame. Then we have a gating module, and this gating module is conditioned both on the, on the segment and also looks at the context. Uh, so not only the current frame, but also at the other frames. Um, and uh, using this gating module, uh, we are able to 
to say whether this particular frame is relevant for classifying this video or not. Uh, and uh, only the ones which are the most uh, relevant, and we could also, uh, similar to previous works, impose a sparsity so that uh, the, the network, the light network, does not pick so many frames, only a limited numbers. And only the most relevant ones would go to a heavy network and uh, do the actual heavy operation, which is which is common. Uh, we use the, the same models as well. And the good thing is that you could couple these light network with any model. You could actually use um, very super efficient models, which are also uh, already implemented, and couple it with this gating module. It would still give you a lot of benefit. Uh, and no matter what model uh, we use as the main feature representation extractor, we roughly saved half of the Mac uh, operations. And even at that point, we slightly got improved performance, uh, maybe because we, we are able to uh, help the network focus only on the relevant parts of a video and get over from the distractions and actually get slightly better performance even, even at half the computation cost. Um, and this approach is definitely orthogonal to a lot of, uh, let's say, compression techniques because some, some approaches focus on making the models comp compact. And uh, let's say you could, you could basically do our channel gating on these models as well, or you could do static compression uh, methods. And uh, adding these gating modules to only focus on the relevant parts of the video could really bring down the computation costs overall. And so is the the use of channel gate or conditional gating in, in in this context, you know, how similar is it, you know, in application as conditional gating in the other two papers? It seems like it's it's somewhat different. It's it is somewhat different actually. Uh, so uh, we use the same Gumball softmax trick trick for for training these uh, gating modules, but mm -hmm. um, it, it is uh, basically for training this we we thought of uh, first, extracting a, a bunch of concept kernels. Concept kernels could be uh, extracted using, a, a, let's say, a network which is pre-trained on the data set you want to work on and getting some representations. Let's say I want 100 kernels at the end. And you, you, you basically compress this data and say, these are the core concepts of my data set. And then this gate as inputs instead of getting before training or during training this this is uh, before the start of the training you could this is an independent concept uh, so you yeah. could do, you could extract that anyway okay and then uh, for these gating is so previously we had for example as input to our gates the representation coming from the reset block here it's very different here the gating module would get as input the representation coming from the last layer of the light network in the start of the model. So the light network first uh, give us some representation and using that. Uh, and, and also we do a dot product of that with the concept kernels to see if there is anything interesting in this frame given the concept kernels that I know about this data set. And this uh, dot product would go to our gating module. And this gating module will, of course, it uses the Gumball softmax trick, uh, which which we've been using uh, previously as well. I think I'm struggling with what is actually gated in, in in this. Are you gating the kind of the input flowing into the kind of the the overall network, or are you you still doing something similar where you're you're gating you know ResNet modules or filters or or something like that? The the, the former. So so uh, okay. there is a light net and a and a and a heavy net. And if the light net says the, cur the current frame is irrelevant, 
the entire frame and 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 actually uh, this uh, snippet around it. So we we analyze the center of the snippet. Let's say we have eight frames that goes to the heavy net. Yeah. But the light net only analyzes the the middle frame of these eight, among these eight frames. And if it okay. says no, it's not interesting. Uh, the heavy net it. would just completely get not analyze the entire snippet. Okay, and so you've got these eight frames, and you're analyzing the center frame. Are you striding, or is it eight, and then the the next eight uniformly sampled? And uh, so okay. uniform sample a lot of these segments. Let, let's say eight frame, eight frame, eight frame until the end to cover the entire video. And we only the two net only analyzes the center frame uh, among these. Let's say the frame number four, and based on that, makes a decision. Is these the entire chunk of uh, frames useful for the current uh, classification task or not? Are there other applications to this uh, than video, or why did why yeah. um, did you even go after this particular problem? So uh, we thought uh, gating in general would benefit a lot in uh, let's say classification problems, or or we even tried it on segmentation problem as well, but. A data set with, with the biggest amount of redundancy, we think, is video. Video, uh, when you're analyzing video, there is so much correlation in, in different frames. That you're basically observing the same thing over time that it makes it the, the most low-hanging fruit for, for gating operations. Uh, uh, we are actually following up on a lot of uh, tasks using uh, conditional compute for uh, video analysis as well, including video segmentation, classification, etc. Apologies if you mentioned this already, but the specific results of uh, this in terms of the the videos and your the computational complexity, all that. What did you end up finding? So we found that, for example, no matter what heavy type uh, architecture we we use, whether it is the most complex ResNet 3D model, let's say ResNet 3D 101, uh, or it's a very efficient model, we can reduce the cost by half while still getting slightly better performance than the original model. So we, we both okay. have and perform better. And one very interesting property of this, this approach is that it makes interpretability very easy because you could immediately look at the, the chunks of video in, in the entire 10-minute video that are selected and are they actually correlated. So uh, you could very easily analyze if the gates are working properly or not. And did you see any interpretability results uh, in other couple of uh, papers or problems that you were looking at as a result of this? Yeah, absolutely. So in the first work uh, for the channel gating, we we targeted uh, some of the filth, some of the gates that would uh, the the most interesting gates are the ones which are very selective in firing. For example, only firing five percent of the times. If you look at them, the examples look very similar. For example. Only uh, tiny insects in the middle of grasses uh, are detected at some by, by this uh, particular gate. Or, for example, all the giant creatures in, in the water are, are detected by a particular gate. And then in the continual learning, it was we thought it would be harder to recognize these, these gates, uh, to, to see differences. But it was uh, very, very interesting. We, we looked at a gate which was running in all different tasks. Let's say the task was one versus two classification for task one, uh, three versus four for task two, four versus five, task three, etc. And there was a gate 
that would activate whenever the well in the first uh, like glance I didn't recognize it, but then I focused and I said, okay, this this gate is actually firing for all the bold phones and all the ones which are like the tiny phones, uh, which is the, the the letter is not very bold, it would not fire, which which huh. found that feature interesting. But but it's in general it's a little bit more difficult uh, when the number of classes is not huge to find interpretability. But for Ethernet, for example, it was very easy to to see uh, interesting uh, to get interesting insights of what each yeah. is doing. Yeah, you know, the this work in conditional gated networks. Yeah, you know, how does this um, ultimately kind of get expressed in you know products and and things like that? What do you do with you know this stuff that you're you know learning and discovering? Uh, so this is currently mostly at our at a research level, of course. Um, mm -hmm. we, we have been, um, so the, the entire vision is that we could probably at some point have a very, very giant network that could be very sparsely activated. It could even work for multiple tasks, completely independent tasks, and then condition on the input, it would find out which path in the network uh, it, would, it would actually, uh, sh should, should need to be activated. So at inference time, it's gonna be very light. But, uh, but of course, um, the first step uh, that we took, we talked to the software team and uh, to see what are the requirements for, for uh, making use of such models. And usually um, our discussions were, were so we, we need to convince them that we need to implement the specific layers that, that would uh, allow uh, implementing this on our, our particular hardware. Uh, we are in the middle of a discussion and uh, trying to use this channel gating in a, in a number of works. Um, but in general, a, a lot of times, this when the when the trick that we are using or researching is straightforward, that could have very fast impact and go uh, directly into the product. For example, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Marcus Nagel and and uh, Martin Taiman, uh, have been working on a quantization paper. Uh, which was from ICCV 2019, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and this uh, paper was working very well. They, they talked to the software team. It was immediately implemented. And uh, it was su suddenly, like in a, in a matter of a couple of months, it went to our Snapdragon platform and people could, could actually use it. And then uh, later on, we got in our uh, private WhatsApp group, I got a message that this uh, this particular quantization method is now employed by this very famous app. I'm not going to name it, but 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 now suddenly maybe hundreds of millions of people are gonna are gonna make use of the uh, the the technique that you developed. It was completely a, re a research at some point, but now it is actually in your product. Wow, wow! But something like uh, like this work is it? Um, you know, to what degree is it? You know, broadly applicable. Uh, to a wide variety of, of applications. And in particular, we've talked about, you know, different applications that it, it can uh, be applied to. But uh, in, in each of those cases, you're kind of tuning the application of um, the conditional gating, uh, I think, quite a bit. You know, do you, do you see a, a point at which this is um, a kind of off the shelf, you know, thing that's automatically applied across different use cases? You know, what's the the path towards making it generally uh, applicable? And that's a, a good question. I think 
so I'm really advocating the use of conditional compute. Uh, in general, I think it is biologically also very, uh, very uh, relevant because uh, a lot of uh, uh, the models of the brain say that the neurons are activated in a very sparse fashion. And it's not like a pruning method that some of the neurons are never activated. It's, it's really dynamic. Sometimes some elements are activated and sometimes not. So I think this should definitely be um, a direction in the future. Uh, and uh, I think it, it's kind of, uh, it would be weird for me if the future of AI would be that we have, uh, let's say for 100 applications, we have 100 independent models which are only trained with that data and we run them all one at uh, one at a time. This this is not going to be the future, I think. I think it would be a centralized model, which would be very good in operating uh, uh, on multiple tasks at the same time, uh, and it could sparsely get activated. Um, so initially, when I when I talked to some hardware forks, they, they thought this might be a little bit... Uh, and not uh, in, in, in maybe by next year, uh, as it may not happen, but but they definitely see uh, that this might happen at some point because they, they see the vision that this uh, this could be part of the future uh, of AI models. And this immediately says that, for example, to get this implemented, you need an if-else if statement. So if this happened, if Gates, Gates says this operation, uh, you need to do this and else do that. So we need uh, first of, uh, to see what can be done by the software folks, uh, and then if if necessary, we could even uh, reach out to, to to the hardware folks to influence the next generation of even hardware. Uh, I think. Well, Balbek, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us uh, what you're up to there. It sounds like uh, really interesting stuff that um, you know. I hope to to see more of in the future. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.